日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome again to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris here with Travis、Yo. at、uh, the University of Hawaii at Manoa, the Samurai Archives studio.、Uh, today we're going to talk about Sakoku, or the closing of Japan during the Edo period, which, as you may or may not remember, is in theory,、uh, Japan was closed off、uh, from the rest of the world in isolation for about 250 years. Until and also kicking out Christianity until being reopened around 1853 by Commodore Matthew Perry.、Mm. I myself in high school and I'm not sure about in college, but definitely in high school, I remember being taught that Japan was closed to, you know, Japan closed itself off to, from the world and entered isolation and,、um, you know, and, and, and even like fell behind in everything, in technology, whatever. Just closed itself off and was not reopened until 1853 when Perry forced it reopened. So I'd be very curious for many, our, for many of our listeners, you know, in different parts of, of the United States and different parts of the world, you know, what, what have you learned in high school? What have you learned in college? How, how is it um, um, constructed? Because、uh, in scholarship, you know, if you actually look at what historians, anybody from Conrad Totman to,、uh, you know, anyway, You know, what, what, what people are talking about in scholarship since even the 1970s, scholars have already been pretty, pretty strongly of the view that、uh, Japan was not, in fact, closed.、Mm. Although, interestingly enough, the sort of the pop culture concept is that Japan was, was definitely closed. It hasn't really filtered down to the general public yet. Exactly, yeah. And, and in fact, the more you kind of read on the topic, you almost get the impression that it's sort of a, almost a Western construct that Japan was actually closed and that the Japan of the time, contempor-、yeah. contemporary to Sokoku, didn't really, well, aside from the fact that they didn't allow trade with certain countries and didn't、yeah. allow lots of trans- transport of people here and there. <laughs> They didn't necessarily consider it a, a closed situation.、Yeah. It's interesting because I think that it definitely does serve the American or maybe sort of European narratives、um, in terms of their point of view of, you know, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, that the US in particular, but I mean, basically everybody, all the major maritime powers were seeking markets and seeking access, and Japan wasn't letting them have access to it. You know, and also in terms of the Industrial Revolution and Western concepts of modernity, Japan looked like it had closed itself off to modernity, closed itself off to all this stuff. So it definitely serves the American narrative to say that, you know, Commodore Perry was doing a good thing for the world or whatever, and, or for Japan. But I, I, you're absolutely right. I think that at the time, within the Edo period, people, you know, sh- shogunate officials or whatever other people did not consider the country to be closed. Um, and as we'll get to in a minute, the word sakoku wasn't even, you know,、uh, we'll talk about the origin of the word sakoku. But I think that even today in Japan, it's not, you know, it's not just a Western construct in the sense that today in Japan, the average person on the street very well might think that Japan was in fact closed. And that the word sakoku is, I think, a very commonly used word in Japan to refer to that period. There was a, a study recently that was talking about the way that. Average Japanese on the street use the concept of sakoku 
to sort of justify certain views about how Japan is today. Oh yeah, you know, we, we Japanese today, uh, you know, still have a lot of trouble interacting with the outside world because we were closed for so long. And our, our whole society, our whole economy is so driven, well not the economy because it's an export economy, but you know, our whole society is so functioned, so organized around ourselves in a sort of in, a domestic focused manner because we were closed for so long and so it's hard for us to get used to being open or whatever which you know is just um, which there may be some other aspects some I'm sure there's some like Nihonjin Ron kind of concepts right. mixed in there like we are Japanese we are different yeah yeah but it's so anyways so I think the concept of Sakoku as well as and we could get into a whole that'd be a whole other podcast to talk about the way that the concept of Sakoku specifically in contrast to Kaikoku, the opening of the country, and Meiji ideas of joining modernity and setting the Tokugawa period as the Dark Ages, and you know that whole sort of construct uh, which continues to function today, people assuming, that, or assuming or being taught in school that the Tokugawa period was some kind of Dark Ages because of the continuation today of certain Meiji ideas of uh, you know, modernity and, and stuff. Um, but anyway, but yes, in the in the Edo period, they didn't really didn't necessarily think of it that way. Yeah, and in fact, uh, it's interesting to point out, in fact, that the term Sakoku didn't even exist for the first 150 years of Sakoku. I was uh, that the term Sakoku, I guess, uh, closed country, sort of appeared in 1801, and it actually came from a Japanese translation of Engelbert Kempfer's History of Japan. So the translator Shizuki Tadao basically translated the title of the book as Sakokuro. And uh, Sakoku, according to this, basically was his own invention. He just uh, reversed the characters for Kunio Tozas, an expression appearing in the translation. So basically he just sort of took a term and invented a Japanese equivalent for it. Yeah, Kunio Tozasu meaning like taking a country and chaining it up with chains. So I guess we should probably go back to sort of getting back to the actual what is it we're talking about, this closed country thing, right? So, starting in the 1630s, and I, I guess I could pull up the actual dates, but anyway, over the course of the 1630s, the Tokugawa Shogunate put into place a bunch of uh, sort of stages of different rules, kicking out most foreigners from the country, and as well as banning Japanese from leaving the country or from coming back. So, by, by 1640, the only Europeans that were allowed any access to Japan were the Dutch, the Dutch East India Company, who were restricted to this tiny little island of Dejima in uh, Nagasaki Harbor. Koreans and Chinese were given a little bit more freedom and flexibility to wander <coughs> around the country. Although technically, I guess from the, the Chinese point of view, around that point, they uh, were, th- there wasn't an official, it was, it was more like the Chinese considered these Chinese uh, ships as, as smugglers smuggling from to and right. from Japan. Yeah, yeah. The ja- uh, yeah, the Chinese officially cut off relations with Japan back in like this early 16th century. So they, there was no official relations between China and Japan throughout the entire Edo period. So right. So any and and actually, you know, in prior to the 1630s, there's actually quite a few Japanese living overseas, um, living or, or sort of traveling back and forth overseas very, very active in trade in Vietnam, Thailand, yeah, Thailand, Korea, Korea, 
a little bit in like the Philippines or Macau even. A lot of Japanese Christians had fled to places like the Philippines and Macau. Um, and after 1640, they were not allowed back. So there definitely is a, an aspect of, there definitely is an aspect of, of restrictions. And I, I'm personally a big fan of the word kaikin, or, uh, which is just the characters for ocean and um, like forbidden. No, so maritime, maritime restrictions. Maritime restrictions. Um, a term advanced primarily by the scholar um, Arano Yasunori, but which is actually a term that was used at the time in the Edo period is also a term used by the Chinese in their maritime prohibitions um, against you know maritime trade at various periods in various different ways uh, and which pronounce something like hygiene in instead of kaikin hygiene in Chinese so but uh, so basically I mean I think in the Western view or the American view there's this real focus on whether or not Japan was closed to Westerners and so the fact that the Portuguese, the Spanish, the English were all kicked out. Um, well, the English left anyway, just because their their business wasn't doing well, and they were, they were being um, outcompeted by the Dutch. But the fact that it was the fact that that it was closed to Western powers makes it you know easier for the for the, the Western narrative to say that it was closed. But in point of fact, and, and and I think for a long time, a lot of scholarship focused exclusively on Nagasaki the port of Nagasaki, where the Dutch and the Chinese were allowed to trade. But in fact, there were four, quote-unquote, gates, four places where Japan was open to interactions um, with five people. So the Dutch and the Chinese, um, interactions with Ryukyu, the Ryukyu Kingdom, through Satsumahan, interactions with Korea through Tsushimahan, and interactions with the Ainu through Matsumaehan, um, way up in, in Hokkaido. Also, you also... Uh through the Chinese uh, via Okinawa also. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, and, and in fact, with other peoples as well, I mean, the Dutch, in, Dutch East India Company included Germans, Swedes, other people who were allowed in as, as Dutch or along with the Dutch. But yeah, so anyway, so that's, that's basically the situation from roughly 1640 until 1853 that there's very active amounts of, of trade and stuff going on but but just limited in in, uh, in who's allowed to trade in which places and at what times and stuff. And we could go into further detail about exactly the size, the volume of trade, but... Yeah, well, I, I guess to kind of start, um, I guess the first question is, what was the whole purpose? Was it isolationism or were they really cut off? And I think uh, looking at kind of the reasons behind it, in, uh, at least in this article I was reading, uh, reopening the question of Sakoku diplomacy and the legitimization of the Tokugawa Bakufu by Ronald P. Toby, uh, and I'll have a, a link to that article up on the uh, blog, but mainly the reasons for uh, the uh, restrictions, uh, it, it has a lot to do with le legitimization of the Bakufu, more than anything else actually. Uh, the Bakufu wanted to use international relations to basically show that they are the ones who are in charge of the country. Uh, you know, anytime there's a regime change, the new regime wants to have relations with, say, the U.S. or whatever. So it's kind of along those same lines. Uh, the regime change in the Edo period, the Bakufu wanted to legitimize their rule by saying we're the we're the guys in control of the country. We're the ones that control trade. So they normalized relations with Okinawa and Korea. And actually, I think that's a really interesting aspect of the uh, normalization of relations with Korea. Within 30 years of the invasions of Korea, they were. Uh, had, had normal diplomatic relations on equal footing. So, 
even though Koreans of the modern day kind of have this impression that Japan has been the enemy forever, within 30 years of Hideyoshi's invasions of Korea, they were back to normalize political relations on an equal footing. So that's uh, you know an interesting historical yeah. fact that seems to have been forgotten. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think perhaps even sooner, I'm trying to find the date here, but... Yeah, yeah, it might have even been in uh, 10 years after, yeah, like the 1610s even. Yeah, I think 1600, 1610s. Yeah, so it was pretty, it was pretty soon. Pretty quick. Uh, they wanted to main, uh, normalize relations with Korea. Uh, also, along these lines, the Bakufu originally actively lobbied for trade with China, but eventually abandoned it for political reasons. Basically, they, they didn't want to be sort of a tributary state to China, and it kind of seems the only way China would be willing to accept yeah. normalized relations with Japan is if Japan paid them tribute and of course for legit legitimization purposes Japan you know, the Bakufu didn't want to be subservient to seen as subservient to China right. so essentially that sort of cut them off from China for good although of course through Okinawa and also via Korea they were able to get all the things that they needed from China mm -hmm. I think big things like ginseng was, was something yeah, that was yeah. a big item uh, during the AAS conference I went to the uh, I think it was a Nagasaki trade uh, I don't remember exactly the, the subject, but there were different speakers, and, and one of the guys, his paper was essentially on the sort of things that, you know, the, the sort of tr the items that were coming into Japan and the importance of these things coming from China. So even though they had no direct relations with China, they were still getting things from China. Yeah, and it, I think it's interesting that, you know, we, t uh, we tend to focus on, I mean, there was a lot going on in Nagasaki, certainly, independent merchants, and I guess maybe some scholars and people like that, maybe monks. Um, and the, the, what's the word, the in, import, I guess, yeah, the in, in, importing, for lack of a better word, of not only goods, but also, you know, Chinese books, right? Um, certainly in art history, we talk about the importation of Chinese painting manuals and things like this, as well as, you know, Chinese medicine books, all these kinds of things. But the people, the Chinese who were resident in Nagasaki or the Chinese who were trading at Nagasaki were commoners, merchants smugglers in the eyes of the Ming, of the Ming or Qing governments. Um, but through Ryukyu, and, and through Korea as well, but especially through, through Ryukyu, Japan actually had access to much more direct information about what was going on in Beijing. Because the, the Chinese that were in Nagasaki were mainly from Fujian, they're mainly from the southern coasts uh, regions, and these guys had never been to Beijing. But a very small number of Ryukyuan aristocrats had actually been to Beijing and, and went there relatively regularly. I think maybe once every 10 years they sent four people or something like that. I don't remember the details. But so uh, anyway, so through Ryukyu, Japan was actually able to get very, you know, pretty, pretty direct information about political developments and other things that were going on in Beijing. Um, so, you know, once the um, Opium War happened, for example, you know, even though Japan was still quote-unquote closed off, you know, whatever, um, they, they heard pretty, pretty quickly uh, and relatively accurately about what was going on in China through Ryukyu. Yeah, and uh, so I, I think essentially it's all uh, sort of this sort of diplomacy, politics, and trade was a sort of grand uh, propaganda-oriented diplomacy, which is the term that Toby uses, where Basically, everything that they're doing is trying to legitimize their own rule in the eyes of their people. Right. And I think another major factor, um, and I mean, yeah, the question of the reasons behind it is not something that I personally have like really looked into too deeply. But I think another major factor in it was, at least at first, was kicking out missionaries 
and the fear of um, a fear of, of Spanish Portuguese missionaries and the fear of Christian daimyo creating a a um, a situation of, of uh, you know of, of just you know instability fra- instability fractiousness they, they were afraid of uh, daimyo who had greater loyalty to the Pope or to God than than to the Shogun um, and you know they wanted to make sure that people were uh, uh, loyal to the Shogun yeah. So they kicked out Christian, uh, Christianity, kicked out, kicked out the missionaries. And since the Dutch were really in it for the money and were not really in it for the religion uh, aspects, they, the Dutch were, you know, allowed to continue to trade. And for a long time, you know, any books that had any kind of mention of, of Christianity were banned, um, as well as other Dutch books, I think, as well. But eventually, that was lifted. Yeah, and uh, you know, also interesting to note is that. Uh, Trade actually increased uh, after the uh, sort of the isolationist policies. Yes. So, uh, which is sort of uh, I don't know ironic or antithetical to the mm-hmm. the thesis that Japan was completely closed off. Yeah. Uh, mainly, uh, I think Japanese silver. Japan was the largest uh, silver producer in Asia, mm-hmm. and so their uh, their silver coins became sort of a de facto international currency for a right. while. I mean, specifically, if we look at the actual year of the changeover in the sixteen. I want to say 1639, I'm forgetting which year. I think year. that's about right, 1638, 1639, right after the Shimabara Rebellion. I can't exactly which years were which restrictions, but in any case, you know, when they officially kicked out the Spanish and the Portuguese, the Shogunate actually, you know, sent a, a letter or, I don't know, whatever, communicated with the Dutch East India Company and said explicitly, like, we're not going to be getting anything from the Portuguese anymore, we need you to start providing more silk and more other goods from Vietnam, from China. Um, and so, yeah, the volume... And I think the Dutch took them super seriously and ended up flooding the market, which crashed the prices or something like that, I think. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, but but, but, they, but they did, in any case, provide, you know, the, enough. So it wasn't... Um, it was not that imports dropped. It was actually very much that, you know, they, they just started coming from different sources and being controlled in different kinds of ways. Yeah, yeah, and the, uh, the sort of the interplay with uh, the, the intermediaries, like with uh, Tsushima, it was interesting that uh, Tsushima's entire uh, like existence depended on the Korean trade. Right. And I was reading in uh, the other article by Tashiro Kazui, uh, foreign relations during the Edo period. Sakoku reexamined. He talks about uh, how. Japan was producing huge amounts of silver until uh, the, the mid-17th century when they started to realize, the Bakufu started to worry or realize that they're, they're starting to kind of run out of silver and they start sort of debasing the coinage, mm-hmm. um, which uh, it was, I think it, I think it started at 80% silver, yeah. so, and, so, and this was the, the coin that was used sort of as international currency in, in Asia. And then uh, they, de- they debased it, they reduced the amount of silver in the coins, which then threw the whole Silver trade out of whack and almost, right, I guess, good. put Tsushima under, and then they, they and then Tsushima put in a request to have like special coins made for Tsushima trade that was back to the eighty percent. Yeah, and and it, I mean, it messed up the domestic economy as well, and it caused huge inflation, and all kinds of issues. But, yeah, and then uh, also yeah. the the and the copper trade became big after that too, and then right. of course uh, later on the, the sort of the copper, uh, they they started to put restrictions on copper trade as well. But uh, the, uh, these Japanese coins, I, I think they're called chogin, mm-hmm. uh, were sort of an international currency, which I thought was interesting. 
for a country that's supposed to be closed and isolated, the, the national currency sort of became an international, uh, right. uh, like a reserve currency. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, I mean, basically just the point of saying that, and, and we, 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 we go turn it to a different direction, and, and, and just the idea that Japan was closed and that it, I think one of the things that appeals, appeals to me about studying Japan to begin with, you know, people are always asking me, why do you study Japan? Like, why, why Japan? And I think, you know, 10 years ago or so, mm, whatever, 12, 13 years ago when I first started studying Japan, it seemed like, oh, you know, because Japan is relatively isolated from outside influences. It was never colonized. Um, you know, it didn't have any, like, major um, Christian um, conversion, you know, uh, like here in Hawaii where the uh, all the natives converted to Christianity and even though they completely uh, you know they, they, even though they have these strong feelings about about colonizers and about you know throwing them out and going back to their own way of life they're still attached to their Christianity uh, anyway but Japan never had that issue right and so it seemed to me like oh I can go study another culture that actually is <clears throat> its own culture right Japan you know, has its its geisha and its kabuki and its ukiyo-e and its and its its own thing and its ninjas and its samurai and it's yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly you know and it's not colonized and like that it's not super modernized yet and influenced and we can go into all tons of things about the way that it actually was modernizing in its own ways and like that but uh, anyway but culturally well, the more we look into it the more we learn about it Japan actually was not even sort of culturally even in terms of things like kabuki or geisha or whatever. Japan was not that isolated and there actually was a lot of influence from uh, Korea, from Ryukyu, um, from the Dutch. I think it probably is fair to say though that from the everyman on the street it was probably pretty isolated to where they didn't really have much concept of the outside world but I think as far as the the, the, the traders and the politicians and yes. the sort of the higher-ups, you know, the people who... I, I think there was probably a lot of uh, what am I trying to say? No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so I, I think basically, yeah, the, uh, the the sort of the average person probably didn't have too much of a concept of what was right. going on, but that doesn't mean that the country itself was isolated. Right. But I think if you if you pulled a random person off the street in Edo, you know, they might have never. Chances are they've never seen, uh, you know, a Korean or a, China, or a Ryukyuan or a Dutch person in the flesh. If they have, they've seen them passing by in a grand procession. Right. You know, on a particularly rare occasion. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was not contact and intermingling, you know, throughout the country like there may be today. But that same average guy on the streets of, to of, of Edo, you know, he's probably, he's probably seen some kind of, he's probably seen some kind of special like looking glass demonstration on, on the street corner where somebody was... Uh, well, like imported items and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were, there were telescopes, there were microscopes, there were all kinds of... Um, uh, like stereoscopes and things, you know, it, and they had these like peep boxes. I'm forgetting on, um, what good uh, words to use it, but it, you know, they had these kinds of things where you'd be wandering down the street and somebody would say, "Oh, hey, you know, come and you know, you pay like one mon or whatever it is. You pay like one coin and you can look in my box." And they had ukiyo-e prints with Western-style uh, linear perspective, stretching. You know, so you're sort of using one-point perspective to design something that looks like it stretches all the way back into mm -hmm. a far distance. And this, uh, which is completely, you know, it is influenced by the importation of Dutch books and an understanding of Western art in that respect. 
and the effect is heightened by the use of certain kinds of lenses, again, imported from the Dutch. So, you know, you look in and, and you get this feeling of actually, they call them, they call them ukiye, floating pictures, because it mm. looks like you're actually... So these are the stereoscopic pictures, is that it? Well, no, it's actually, it's not two lenses, but it's, it's, just, one, it's just one, but it uses a lens to sort of heighten the, it's like a, bird, uh, what's the word, not a bird's eye lens, I mean, is it called a bird's eye lens? I don't know, but it certain kinds of sort of peep boxes and lenses that uh, either either magnify or sort of otherwise sort of kind of skew the view, making a flat image look more. Particularly if you've never seen Western perspective, if you've never seen this linear perspective, um, I think it has a really sort of dramatic effect. And in art history, we talk about how this did not take off, and the Japanese did not all start adopting linear perspective. It was it was a, a party trick. It was a cool. It's a cool, uh, you know, trick to, to see on the streets. Like, oh, that's, a, that's mm. a fun little thing. But yeah, so I mean, they incorporated all kinds of things like that, and like we were talking before about Chinese medicines and I don't know, all kinds of different things like that. So, uh, you know, and you can see in ukiyo-e prints, like you know, you buy a print of, uh, you know, girls playing with a telescope. H- how do they know about telescopes because of, Im- of importing things from the Dutch? So there was definitely all kinds of influences like that. Um, maybe not anything super dramatic, you know, that, that flooded the market and, and, and changed everything. But there were definitely, you know, influences. It was not really closed off. So, so uh, you wrote a paper, in fact, on trade during the Edo period, which I think most of it took place a little before Sakoku. But uh, yeah. and we actually we uh, talked about your paper in the. I guess you could call it our, our first pre-episode, the, the yeah. sort of episode before episode one. Yeah. Um, but uh, in, in that paper, did you, really, did you get into uh, the sort of the theories of Japan wasn't actually all that isolated after all? Um, the main focus of that paper was really focusing on the period before, before um, maritime restrictions were put into place. So it's not really directly arguing against Sakoku. Per, I mean, it, it is, but it's. It wasn't really focusing on this period after the restrictions were in place. But so I guess the main point of that article was really just to, that essay was to say that before restrictions, things were actually even even more vibrant than we normally talk about. Because even when Japan was quote unquote open, even before restrictions were put into place at all, people general you know, scholarship normally talks about just relations with China and Korea or just relations with the West. And so I wanted to really bring out the fact that Japan was so active in in not Japan as a country, but individual Japanese merchants were so active in interacting with, uh, you know, Vietnamese ports, Thai ports, Malaysia. Um, but 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 that's actually a good point because I did come up with a few instances, not super much, but after restrictions were put into place, there were still missives, there were still communications being sent back and forth between the shogunate and the Thai court or the Vietnamese court. Um, Thai ships, actually, I, I think the numbers were pretty small, but ships owned by, run by the Thai royal government or uh, royal court, and built in a in a European fashion, did travel to Nagasaki and did trade at Nagasaki as quote unquote Dutch ships and were allowed in hmm. as quote unquote Dutch ships. And some very small number, I don't know the details, it might be even a larger number than I think of it, I don't know, but some small number of Vietnamese ships or 
maybe, yeah, Vietnamese ships piloted by, by Chinese crews or something like that were also included among the quote-unquote Chinese ships at Nagasaki. Hmm. So as long as you were a quote-unquote Chinese ship or a quote-unquote Dutch ship, you were still allowed to trade. And even before restrictions were put into place, a lot of Southeast Asian ships were run by Chinese crews anyway. So. So that's it for our episode on international trade and relations during Japan's Sokoku period. We'll be back in about two weeks with part two. But in the meantime, feel free to uh, hit us up on iTunes and give us some good ratings. That's always nice. Also, uh, if you need to reach us, you can reach us at samuraipodcast at gmail.com. And you can get us on Twitter at Samurai Archives. And of course, we're out there on Facebook and on the forum, etc., etc. And if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, you can do that in a couple ways. You can go to our Amazon.com powered bookstore, pick up some books there. You can also go to our Cafe Press t-shirt shop and pick up t-shirts or mug cups and various other trinkets. Or if you shop on Amazon.com, you can basically go right through our link that you can get via the podcast blog. And every little bit helps. All right, that's it. And we'll see you in two weeks.